and welcome to the Hungry Artists Podcast. I am co-host Allie Press. And I'm Emily Lipking. And we're so excited to be back again. Thank you for uh, bearing with our hiatus. And when we say thank you, we are mostly speaking to you, Nick Mercer, our loyal fan. We love you. (laughs) Yeah, we've been so incredibly busy making art. We just haven't been able to keep up with this podcast, but we're excited to get back into it and kind of push through the busyness and do this anyway. And hopefully our listeners haven't all bailed. (laughs) Please come back. Please come back. Or not. That's fine. This also is just for us. Yeah, we're going to keep making this whether or not anyone listens. Absolutely. So, Emelina, they'll hear it in this interview. So, this interview is with one of my college professors, Jay Herzog. He's super cool. And I mentioned that I was I did the interview alone because you are currently in Ohio. Tell us about that. Okay, so I am in I'm in Yellow Springs, Ohio. This it's closest to Dayton. If you're an Ohio listener, holla at ya. But <laughs> I'm here weaving. So I'm weaving with Green Tree Weaving Company, which is a hand weaving company that makes fabric for it's 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 somewhere between fashion and mm, how do I explain these clothes we sell it at renaissance festivals we're not making corsets and things like that but we are making homemade cloth and homemade garments that are very kind of hippy dippy free spirit fun clothes so um it's very exciting because I'm getting paid to do one of the things that I love and it's going so well so when I got here I I really didn't know what to expect Margaret who is my boss and will probably be a guest on the podcast later um she is an incredibly impressive woman and she she has I mean, there's like 20 looms here. There's four power looms. There's a there's two. There's three separate buildings that are for weaving and building more looms. Oh my goodness! So, so one of the one of the rooms is called the temple, and it's got like 10 hand looms in it, and they all have warps on. And uh, for our non-weavers, a loom is what you weave on, <laughs> and you weave to make cloth. And weaving is different from knitting. And those are the two ways you can make textiles. And your t-shirts are knit and your jeans are woven. Okay. So, we're making cloth and we're weaving it. And a warp is is cloth. Not how uh, Explaining weaving to non-weavers is very difficult. And I'm trying to do all these hand gestures and it's not working. But you know what? You know what? If they're really confused and they're but they're interested, then they can go look it up. You can just Google it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so so weaving is what happens when yarns interlock at a ninety degree angle. So knitting mm-hmm. is when yarns are looped into each other, and weaving is when yarns crisscross and lock into a grid. So on the loom, you have yarns going in one way, and you have that's called the warp. And then you have the weft crossing perpendicular back and forth, and that's the weft. 
so the warps are on the loom and they're very long so that we can do a lot of weaving and weave tons of yards, football fields of yardage, just insane amounts of fabric. So I've been weaving like a crazy lady. It's been upwards of 200 yards that I've woven since I've been here. I was really excited because on the fifth day, Margaret told me she was very impressed with what I was doing and she invited me to stay for an extra month and learn more and then she told me I could take a loom home and keep working for her past this. So in the beginning I was just supposed to be here for a month as an apprentice weaving. I didn't I didn't know that she was gonna be paying me. Turns out she's paying me, which is great. And um it's just it's been so incredible. So I'm very happy. I'm so excited. I get to, like, I stick with Green Tree. I get to leave for the rest of my life, making <laughs> cloth, and having a great time and being paid to do it. And this is amazing because it came out of your own bravery, right? Because didn't you, yeah. like, go up to them at the Ren Fair and intentionally start talking about, like, hi, I'm a fiber artist. I like what you're doing. Yeah, hint, yeah. Well, hint. I, have, I, did, I had a little liquid courage in my system. But I, I did, yeah, I went to the Renaissance Festival in Maryland, where they have, um, that's one of their biggest money makers, and I, I went into their booth, and I, they had a loom in their booth, and so I went up to the loom, and I was like, oh, wow, this warp is so interesting, and I started using, like, terminology, so, right, so that they knew, like, who they were talking to, somebody that knew what they were doing, and then I was just like, are you hiring? Like, we did a back-and-forth thing, and eventually, Margaret, I talked to Margaret on the phone, and she was like, well, you should come out here. But when I when I came out here, I think we were both a little nervous that I was going to be able to keep up with what she was doing. I mean, I didn't know about the scale of her production, but it's, I mean, it's huge, and it's a lot for one person to be doing. But um, I'm holding my own. Yay! doing great i'm weaving a lot i'm learning a lot the cloth is beautiful i mean it like to me i've she keeps setting me up for success she keeps setting me up with this is how you do it and it's not like i have to really make any design decisions it's all there and so all i have to do is sit at the loom and weave and that's i mean i knew how to do that coming in yeah so it's it's been really good I feel great. Margaret's really happy with and me. And do you find I that... Feel, I'm and, happy to please. Yeah. Well, and, and um, are you enjoying, like, just the weaving of it? Like, do you enjoy just the process of weaving? Like, even if you're not designing, even if it's not, like, going towards one of your creations, do you enjoy, like, just the process of it? Yes. So, my... There's, there's two kinds of looms. There's the hand looms and there's the power looms. And the power looms are the money makers. They turn out cloth at incredible speed, and they make a lot of money. And it's not super fun, but it's money. Mm-hmm. And the hand looms is like that's that's just the joy of throwing the yarn back and forth and having the, being totally a part of the cloth. And that's really exciting, and that's something that I love. But I. There's a repetition in there. It becomes a dance and a meditation. And I also get to listen to podcasts and audiobooks 
all day long. <laughs> so even if I'm not like totally interested in the power weaving, I have my books and my characters and my Harry Potter, <laughs> and it's all it's all flowing and the fabric is happening. So it's and, an enjoyable time. Yeah, and the farm is beautiful, and I've just been having so much fun, and it just it, I'm so happy. I especially when it's sunny outside and like the wind is blowing through the grass and I just like walk around grinning like this is so great life is so great oh, that's so amazing I'm so happy for you that's really I'm so happy cool for me too good <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm doing so um now that we know what I'm doing what have you been up to what have I been up to um it has been kind of a crazy few months um Life threw some wrenches in there, but that's what makes the gumbo taste good, right? Spices or I don't know. It's spicy. Um, Life has definitely been spicy, but artistically, I finished submitting all of my internship, fellowship, whatever they call them, applications. Got all of those done. I have three that have not rejected me yet. That's three out of seven, I believe. Um, so that is the Shakespeare Theater Company, New Stage Theater, and Milwaukee Repertory. Wait, are we listing rejections or not heard back yet? The three that have not rejected me yet. Okay, <laughs> not rejected yet. Like that list. <laughs> Shakespeare Theater, that's on the list. That's a good one. It's a, it is a good one. Actually, at this point, I think any of those three um, I could be happy at. But we'll see. By June, I should know if I've gotten into any of them. By June, like, if I haven't heard from any of them, then it should be like, okay, then that's a no. So there's that. And I went to the New England Theater Conference, which is basically you ha- you fill out an application. And if you are selected, you go and you have an audition in front of a room of directors and casting directors for various things in the New England area. Nothing directly came of that, but it's always just good to get out there, you know? Right. Um, And then I've just closed this past weekend my run of Reasons to be Pretty at the Green Globe Theater as Steph. I also, over this process, Green Globe celebrated their first year, uh, their first birthday, and... I became our membership coordinator for this second season. So Promotion. I did. I got promoted. I'm like official and shit. So <laughs> I so I will be tracking and coordinating membership requirements, which should be fun and should be fair, fairly easy. Um, I like being involved. I kind of can't help being involved. Um, <laughs> that's I mean, the like, story of my life. And and they have become my family and some of my closest friends. So it's really. It's really a passion project, and we're in a process now where we're figuring out who else is passionate, like who are the dedicated members, um, which is which is cool because you get to find out like what people are there for. Like I have found out about myself that I actually enjoy being in the nitty-gritty, messy, new group. Like I would rather be part of making something new than just – come in building off of an already established thing and I realized that looking back on like my experience in my sorority at Towson like I was in a very small sorority that like we had a lot of work to do and sure 
would it have been easier to just like join FIMU that had hundreds of members and had been there for decades and had lots of history and was kind of a well-oiled machine or whatever? Like, sure, that would have been easier. But I think you learn more and there's that sense of making a difference. Yeah. Well, and there's something about the process of building something new with other people that brings you closer together. Absolutely. So when you're entering something that's established, you have to learn all those things and people tell you stuff and that's that. But when you're making something new like Green Globe, you're all kind of learning this together and having triumph together and heartbreak together. And it's just like Absolutely. It's a process. Well, and then just like, Getting to, they gave me my first chance to costume design. And I got to be there and help choose our shows for next season. I proposed a show that was chosen. Like, it's really exciting. She Kills Monsters. It's about, um, it's a and d play. No, it's cute. This this woman in her 20s, her, her younger sister dies. And to kind of feel closer to her and feel closure she decides to play through the D&D module that her sister had made. And so she kind of learns about her sister through that. Um, so interesting. It is. It's very interesting. Um, and I think it's going to be super cool. So, yeah. And Reasons to be Pretty was an amazing experience. Um, the comment I got a lot after shows was that it was too accurate. If you have ever been in a relationship, even remotely in your life, you will have something to relate to in this show breakups or you dated a douchebag or whatever it's so incredibly lifelike it's a little bit painful but it was a really important show because of how universal the those things were Um, that was really amazing and I got to work with some really incredible people shout outs to Jesse Marciniak and Fred Fletcher Jackson yeah, they um, better be listening. You better be listening. Actually, Jesse does listen to the podcast. So, what <laughs> up, Jesse? Um, you were an awesome director. Love you. And now, what I'm doing is uh, tonight will be the second table read for Romeo and Juliet, also with the Green Globe Theater, for which I will be Juliet, which I am very excited about. I spent years being jaded about this play, but then when you actually go and read the play again, you're like, oh my god, this is a beautiful story. And yes, they're stupid, idiotic teenagers. But like, Romeo and Juliet don't know that they're stupid teenagers. They just think that they're in love. And that's beautiful. And the language is beautiful. Like, Tavish is playing Romeo. Tavish Forsyth is playing my Romeo. And he is wonderful and a delightful human being. But even if he weren't, all he would have to do is speak those beautiful lines to me. And I would melt like ice cream on a summer day because that's how good and romantic those Romeo's lines are. The other super cool thing is that my mom, the wonderful Julie Press, will be playing the nurse. (gasps) Oh, that's so – oh, my God. Yeah. That's so great. So not only are we finally in a show together – but we are the nurse and Juliet. And she is so stoked. She has wanted to play this role forever. I mean, it's a fantastic role. Their relationship with each other is just, like, so heartwarming. It's like this mother friendship thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be... a universal one, too. I think that speaks to a lot of people. 
It does. It's a really wonderful relationship. And I'm really super excited about what Leanna has planned for her whole concept of the show. Uh, she's setting it in 1940s occupied France. Okay. Um, so that should be interesting. So the Capulets are Nazis. Yeah, I was going to say, is there, a, is there like a Jewish thing that's tied into that? Um, or just Nazis versus the good people? <laughs> kind of the Nazis versus the good people. Okay. Yeah, just kind of like Nazis versus the people who were in the state, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's going to be original compositions by Sam O'Farrell, our resident musician, sound designer. And there's just going to be all sorts of really cool stuff. And I'm really, I'm really super stoked to get to work on this. And after the difficult script that Reasons to be Pretty was, because the way that's written, it's A, really close to our normal way of speaking, which actually makes it harder to understand, harder to memorize. Right, because you could have easily put add a like or literally or what, yes. <laughs> whatever in there. Right. And it's also written that it, like, lines interrupt each other. Um, So you have to, like, really, really memorize, like, what you are interrupting and what you can and cannot interrupt and, like, blah, 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 blah. I am so stoked for just some plain old Shakespeare where (laughs) I get to have all of my lines out and I don't have to worry about being interrupted. And I have the beauty of iambic pentameter to help me memorize because – I'm a lover, so all of my lines are in verse. Yeah. So that's going to be actually kind of relaxing, which is probably counterintuitive to what most people would assume. Yeah, because it's Shakespeare. and like ugh. Everybody assumes that it's like, well. But yeah. when you love Shakespeare as much as I do, uh, it's actually it's easy. It's easy peasy, and it's so much. I actually, like, give me Shakespeare any day, and I'm like, that's how people really talk. You give me, like, some Arthur Miller, and I'm like, that sounds so weird. Nobody would say that. (laughs) You watch too many movies. I do. But I've also been seeing Shakespeare for, like, my whole life. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's my second language. I spent five years learning French, but Shakespeare is my second language. (laughs) The old English. Yes, yes, the old English. Um, and I've also been auditioning around. It's kind of the season audition time of year. So I submitted to Iron Crow. I went to the open call for Signature Theater and Arena Stage. That's in D.C. I went to the season auditions for Chesapeake Shakespeare Company. So just trying to trying to put it all out there. And it all gets easier the more you do it. And then overlapping with the end of Romeo and Juliet will be Midsummer Night's Dream with Baltimore Shakespeare Factory. Awesome. I'm so excited for that. They're going to be Puck. Puck is the best character. Well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I was thinking. In of, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. That, that, that band of uh, the goons. The mechanicals. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. funny, but. They're pretty great. And it also depends. It depends on the production. And, like, there have been some times where, like, Nick Bottom stole the show. Yeah. But never quite as much as Puck. <laughs> it's just it's just so much easier for Puck to steal the show. Just inherently. Yeah. It's just right there. It's all there yeah. for you. Yeah. So you just got to take it. 
It's a lot, and I am pretty nervous about it. It's kind of a role that I hadn't thought too much about playing. Because I was genderizing things and putting myself in a box. It's crazy when we do that, man. I know. It hurts, hurts us. It hurts us, and especially when we do it to ourselves. So now I'm coming through it, coming at it from this like whole new perspective of like, okay, well, I know I've heard these lines hundreds of times, but like, how would I say them? He probably makes a lot of sex jokes, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I guess it'll just be interesting, like, if if you decide to play it gendered at all. I kind of feel like there's no need to. No, I mean, he's a fairy. Like, he's not even a person, and the gender is just, like, it's just there because everybody has a gender. Right. Well, so it's more of just, like, it's more of, like, just, like, choosing. That I mean. Yeah. But well, for, let's not get into the political correctness. Yeah. But it's more <laughs> of just choosing a tone. Like, yeah. am I going to be a super silly puck? Am I going to be, like, a mischievous, you know, sultry puck? Like, <laughs> I kind of want to be, like, like, sly, sexy trickster. I don't know if I can, if I can figure yes. that out. Yes. I'm that sounds sure like fun. Kind of what I went for in my audition, so maybe that's what they're kind of looking for. But hey, that's what the rehearsal process is for. Yeah, yes it is. And the chemistry of the other actors and the director. Oh yeah, that's good. Honestly, I'm not even all that worried about making choices for my puck yet because how Oberon and I interact is going to make a big difference because like, that's who all of my scenes are with pretty much. I mean, I fuck with the lovers, but, like... It's not lines, it's actually... Right. Yeah. So, like, the only person that I really speak to, except for one of the fairies, is Oberon. So the relationship that we cultivate is drastically going to affect my characterization of Puck. Yes. Is there anything mm-hmm. else before we get to Jay? I'm very excited to hear about him. So, to, he was your... How do you know him? So... Jay is very well known in the theater department because he floats around and talks to everybody. And oh, he the would Towson. The Yes, Towson. the Towson Theater Department. Sorry. Yes. So he would like he would probably win the like Miss Congeniality Award. And he used to come and just hang out in the costume shop, which I worked in, stuff. So I was never actually his student because he teaches um, lighting, sound, and stage management. But I got to know him just from being around and so he has been a lighting designer for a very very long time and knows quite a lot and it's just yeah it's just a lovely lovely guy to uh get to talk to so I honestly this is going to be a two-part because I wasn't even paying attention to the clock and suddenly two hours had gone by and we had talked for just that long because it was just that easy because he's got so many stories so I hope everybody enjoys listening to Mr. Professor Jay Herzog. Mr. Professor. Mr. Professor. <laughs> Jay Just Jay. All Just right. Jay. All right. And here he is. So I have the pleasure of being here with Jay Herzog. Um, so I guess, like, I don't know. Tell us about yourself. Like, who are you? Who am I? Who are you? <laughs> born, born in Brooklyn, New York. It's probably my main who I am. 
Yes, that definitely a, a has Jew, come up. <laughs> a, a Jewish boy from New York, right? Uh, but who am I? I am a uh, professor at Towson University, and I, I yeah, yep, teaching lighting design and sound design, stage management. So, three of the technical. Oh, areas. I didn't realize you taught stage management. I do. I've been teaching it for many years. And um, although my stage management background is small, I did have a, a, a life as an assistant stage manager in New York, gotcha. and I worked for a casting agency as a stage manager for a little while, right okay. out of college. But um, because as a lighting designer, I get to work so closely with stage managers every day mm-hmm. that it made the most sense that I would take over that area. Yeah. And uh, we used to have a professional, we used to have the stage manager at... Center Stage come in and teach. But oh. um, then he left for Atlanta. Oh, how and, rude. <laughs> yep. So I just took the class back after a couple of years. Yeah. But so I, my specialty is lighting design. Um, I'm also a freelance lighting designer, uh, the resident lighting designer at Everyman Theater, which does not mean I do all the shows. It just means right. that I'm involved in uh, certain aspects of what shows are happening. Like I'll know what's happening in the season a little bit earlier. Okay. I'll be in for discussions. Um, uh, as things are being purchased for the theater. Um, so I'm the go-to person for okay. questions outside of just the normal lighting design. So do you, like, vet the other lighting designers who come in for the show? For a while I did. Kind of for a while I did. Okay. Um, and often if there's a new lighting designer, the artistic director will seek out my feelings about their work. Okay. Um, but, you know, fortunately, uh, there are some really good lighting designers out there that already have a good resume, and so yeah. the artistic director brings them in. Or more often what's happening, since the theater's grown so much over the last four years in mm-hmm. its new space, um, the uh, some of the directors come in with their own team, so okay. they want to work with a specific they lighting know designer. know who yeah. they work with. Right, gotcha. so things have shifted a little bit there as far as the role there. I mean, I used to do four or five shows a year, and now I do two. Jeez, while still teaching. Sometimes three. Uh, yeah. I mean, at one point, uh, before I had tenure mm-hmm. at the university, and I really had to bring up, you know, because we all have to reach a certain level of academic prowess to reach tenure, I was doing six to eight shows outside, plus everything. Well, there's some, and you I was, have some kind of requirement, right? Like, you have to do some outside you work? You have to do research. Okay. And fortunately... Um, as an artist, your research can be the art that you do. Okay. So that's kind of nice. That was nice. And, you know, it was tough because when we first came to Towson, um, that's the time uh, we moved here. And my wife, my wife, I, I, I used to say us, but my wife was pregnant. I wasn't pregnant. <laughs> no, you weren't. No, my wife was pregnant <laughs> with our first child. And so for those first six years that I was at Towson were the first six years of my son's life. Oh. And so that was, you know... We, we found lots of time together, but it certainly, certain things came up where I was very yeah. busy. At how, that. Did, how, do, how did you balance that? Well, my wife never worked full-time okay. since we were married. We made a decision to uh, raise our children, not necessarily, I don't, I don't want to say pawn off, because a lot of people have many reasons for what they do, right. uh, but we decided that um, my wife teaches at Towson as well. Okay. She teaches part-time. She teaches acting for non-majors. So she would do that from 8 o'clock to 11 o'clock, and I would mm-hmm. stay home with our child or then children. Mm-hmm. And then um, at 11 o'clock, I would drive here, and I would just pass off the kids, and we'd do a swap, and then she was off for the rest of the day. So nice. that's how we made it happen. Yeah. 
that sounds like a yep. good system. And, you know, as a lighting designer, unlike a lot of other theater artists, obviously actors and directors, my process is not six weeks yeah. of rehearsal and then who knows how long a run is. Right. My process is I'm in the theater for a week and a half. Right. Plus a couple of rehearsals. So it's not crazy. Yeah. So once the so once the show goes up, once it opens, um, I'm done. You, you're done. You walk out. You say, "I did my job." Whoever the board operator is, done. Their Stage out. manager and the board operators. Gotcha. So I always say that it's kind of a sweet place to be in. Yeah, I always I like to think of it as that everybody's opening is my closing. <laughs> <laughs> so so tomorrow night when we do when we open Polaroid Stories, I'm closing. Gotcha. And I will probably. Not to be mean, probably not step back in the theater to see the yeah. show again unless there's a reason see, for that's that. That's funny because that means you come in and see everybody at their worst. That's correct. <laughs> Sometimes I'll go back. Um, we were just talking about this before we started. Yeah. You asked me, you know, I I go back, I, I seldom go back and see my own work um, for two reasons. Number one, I, well, it's according to what I'm doing, to be honest. It's kind of how I feel about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I seldom go back to see my work because I feel like I can't go back and not be objective about what I've done. Yeah. Um, as a lighting designer, you get to watch your work. Mm-hmm. As an actor, you don't. Um, and you'll sit there and go, oh, why did, I, why, why did I make that choice? Or I could have done something. Or I could have done something else. Yeah. And I find that difficult sometimes. Um, some shows I feel more positive about. Mm-hmm. And then, so opening nights are always really hard for me. Um, I just tend not to either go to opening nights or I go because it's the proper thing to do. Um, sometimes my wife makes me go. Um, it's just, that's yeah. a good thing. As an actor, I tell, like, when friends and family are like, oh, is there, like, a specific, like, time you want want us to come? I'm like, anything but opening night. Right, yeah. Because it's just, it's basically an invited it is. It's, it's a little, I don't want to say false, but it is a little. Yeah. It's an invited rehearsal. Mm-hmm. An important one, but certainly. Absolutely, because you got to start somewhere. Yeah. But. And I was fortunate enough when I was doing my internship in New York City out of college. Where'd you intern? I worked for a company. Well, I worked for three companies at once. So um, two of them were literally married couples. Okay. One owned one company and the other one, and they shared an office. Uh, one was uh, a theater company that's no longer, well, it's a business that's no longer there called Theater Now Incorporated. Okay. They were the managers, so they made sure people got bill, billed and they did all of the paying the bills and making sure the designers got paid and the actors got paid. And nice. Everybody. <laughs> so they were the literally the management of most, a majority of Broadway shows going on at that time. Okay. And then um, down the hall from there was uh, Use Moss Casting, which... We did the casting for um, about a two-thirds, maybe half to two-thirds of all the shows opening on Broadway. And we also did a number of television shows. So we did the Bill Cosby show, and oh, we wow. did a couple of shows like that. So that was pretty busy office. Yeah. And then the third component was um, just through the relationship of who the management company liked to work with. And that was Fred Nathan Associates. And Fred, unfortunately, passed away many years ago, but... Um, his was publicity. Okay. So I did a lot of work uh, on shows that were opening or continuing. So I worked on Cats and, you know, Donny Osmond's opening on uh, a show called Little Johnny Jones, which was a failure on Broadway. 
Uh, but a lot. I was gonna a, say I've never heard of that show. Yeah, no, you probably won't. It's actually it's it's a it's an old James Cagney movie hmm. that they brought to Broadway. Okay. And uh, starring Donny Osmond, I think it lasted two days. I also uh, worked on what is still considered to be the worst play ever to open up on Broadway. It's historically known to be that yeah. play called Moose Murders, Moose um, which was a uh, comic murder mystery. Took place like somewhere in a, I, to be, I, can't, I can't be specific, but it was like in a lodge somewhere <laughs> like upstate New York or Colorado. I have no idea. Yeah. And um, it starred a woman. Her name was Eve Arden, mm-hmm. who was on a TV show earlier than that called Mother-in-Laws, a very popular television show back in the 60s, early 70s. And the show was so bad that she almost refused to come back for Act Two. So that had one night. So yeah, so I've, I've seen a couple of... So that was my internship year. It was fun. That does sound so like I did fun. it for about a year. Cool. And yeah. so where did that fall, like, after college? So you graduate... So or where, where did you even go to... Um, well, I did my... That was my... That was right after my undergraduate years. Okay. So I graduated from Brooklyn College. Okay. And like a lot of students go through, especially in the arts, after, you know, as I say, you know what you're doing September 1 for most of your life. You're going back to school. Right. And um, so, of course, in in... April, May, whenever it was, you start to get nervous because you don't know what your life's going to be after that. It's unplanned. Kind of why we started this podcast. It probably, it's, it's good, right? And being and being hungry. Yes. And um, I had a friend of mine from college who called me up one day and said, "I'm interning for this casting agency in New York City, mm-hmm. and um, casting directors, not a casting agency, which is different." Okay. And um, they're looking for an intern, and I thought you might be interested in doing it. And I had to figure out, like, how am I going to survive? The pay was interesting. The pay was lunch, two subway tokens, and one of the major benefits was I was able to use the company name mm-hmm. to go to shows. So I was, I was a scout in a way. Uh-huh. So if I wanted to see a show off-Broadway, I would just make a phone call, and I would say... Hi, this is Jay Herzog from Hughes Moss Casting, and it was an mm-hmm. equity show off-Broadway or something. Um, I would like a ticket or two for tonight, and they would say, oh, of course, Mr. Herzog. Mm-hmm. And so I saw about 200 and something shows that year between Broadway and off-Broadway. Um, that's a pretty big that's, that's a, a pretty big compensation. It was great. It was fabulous. <laughs> it was a great way to see stuff. And then for a living, um, the nights that I wasn't going to the theater um, or the weekends, I was just basically... Uh, working as a young lighting designer, not making money, being a starting artist, but easily able to compensate my salary by being an an electrician. Okay. So um, my money was working on festivals, summer events, off-Broadway shows, really knocking on doors and saying, I'm here, I have a wrench, and (laughs) I work cheap. Okay. So that's how I kind of made it through those early years. Makes sense. Actually, fun, um, fun fact, that used to, that was for a while. I thought that was going to be my my way of paying the bills. Right. Um, when I was like in high middle middle school, high school, I was like, oh, I could like apprentice to be an electrician, and then I can like pick my own hours, and like I could still work in theaters and stuff. And then I looked more into it, and I realized like how long you have to actually go to school to be like to do the electrician part. Yep, and that kind of it's a lot of work. Fell by the wayside, but. and it's all about making connections. Mm-hmm. And um, as the whole business is, it's all about connections. It's yeah. all about 
who likes you, who doesn't like you, how well you work, and who I think you know. I'd be nice to everybody. Yep, never burn a bridge. That's for sure. Biggest lesson in this business. Yeah. Um, so I left that job, and I worked on a cruise ship for a year. Cool. How was that? Um, great at first, boring in the end. After a while, there's only so many lobsters you could have on Monday night dinner. Um, I'd like to try to get bored of lobster. I'd love to have that opportunity. Yeah, it was, it was interesting <laughs> at first. Um, the best part about that job was right before I got on the ship, they had a fire. And so they had to take the ship out of the water to fix it. Mm-hmm. So they had to find a dry dock. and the, the, Because at that point, it was the largest cruise ship in the world. Um, it didn't fit in most of the open dry docks in the United States. I think like only Norfolk, Virginia actually had a dry dock. Oh, wow. So they had to take it to Germany. So we rehearsed for three weeks. We were doing um, My Fair Lady. Okay. We rehearsed for three weeks in Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went to, on our way to Germany, we had to uh, wait because we couldn't get on the ship yet. So we ended up in, uh, let's see, we're, we were in Amsterdam. And so we got a couple of days in Amsterdam that we just kind of had to hang out, which was just, oh, just, darn. just sucked. <laughs> and then we got on the ship in Germany and then we sailed back. I think we took a slow about like eight days back to the United States and then we went right to work. Cool. So as soon as we got back to the United States, we loaded the ship up and went out on our first cruise. It was great. You know, it's, yeah. I was 20 something years old. I was single. Mm-hmm. That's a life. Um, and, um, did that for about six months at sea, a month and a half of rehearsals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So about seven and a half months, I guess, I did that for. Cool. That was kind of fun. And did you, while you were on the ship, did you get to, like, get off the ship when you guys yep. made stops? Yep. We got off pretty much every, well, one person on the crew would stay back at every port okay. um, to run a movie for people who just didn't want to go out. Sure. Um, Lots of people have been to, you know, they've been to Jamaica, they've been here, they, they're they on the cruise and they don't really care to go back to port. Mm-hmm. Or some of the older people, really, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and we didn't, we weren't able to bring the ship in to the port. Mm-hmm. So we had small, basically boats. ferry boats that okay. we carried with us. They were on the ship. And so we would lower the, those into the water. And so it took you about 40 minutes of waiting online, getting a place, mm-hmm. getting off the ship, getting back on the ship. So some people just were like, I, I'll just stay and sunbathe and hang out and sure. drink Mai Tais or watch a movie. <laughs> so, um, But it was fun. I'm, I mean, I'm glad I did it. Yeah. It was a good time. That's definitely something that I've been interested in. Like, I don't think I'd want to make it my life or a career of it. But like you said, like one tour, one year of it, I think yeah. would be a cool experience. Well, most cruise ships only give you a six-month contract. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't want to do it longer than that. Yeah, I think, I feel like you kind of go crazy. Yep. Oh, yeah, it's, you, you know. Stir crazy. The other thing is, my, you know, when you work on the ship, you don't really have the luxury cabin. Right. So I was below water, so mm-hmm. I had no windows. So you lived in this windowless environment. I remember once waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. We had a 6 o'clock night show that night, and I had to eat dinner. I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I was like, oh, my God. Because my clock didn't say a.m. or p.m. I thought I slept through the whole day. Oh, no. And I run upstairs, and I run upstairs, and I get up on the deck, and it's pitch black out there. And I'm like, oh, Oh. it's not 1, 4 p.m. It's 4 a.m. So it was that kind of life. But it was fun. Yeah. Sounds fun. Yeah. So that's part of my life. 
So what would you say is like the craziest story? Like, Do you have any, I got to work with so-and-so or like um, this and such happened? No, I mean, we've, uh, the cruise ship was interesting because you got to work with a lot of really big stars. Yeah. Um, not for the shows that we're doing, but the guest acts. Okay. So that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I don't even remember half of the people that were there. Um, I was fortunate enough when I was in college, though, uh, Brooklyn College has a professional theater, a touring, you know, like they would bring in acts. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of used to that star thing because mm -hmm. that's what we did a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never really, I don't think there's anybody I ever met where I actually walked in and I said, oh my God, I get to work with these people. I did um, have to go to the rehearsal of Little Foxes when I was working on my internship. Um, and I did have to sit right next to Liz Taylor wow. in rehearsal. And that was, um, that was an interesting moment for me because yeah. all I kept wanting to do is I kept wanting to really... I wanted her to look in my eyes so I could see if her eyes were really as lavender as they said, and they were. Yeah. Wow. And it was just really weird. So I felt like, hmm, I've got an hour to sit next to, sit next to her, and I'm just curious if her eyes are really, you know. Maybe that purple. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, after a while of me being kind of the, the timid 20-year-old in the very big rehearsal studio, mm -hmm. she just turned to me and said, by the way, who are you, and how, you know, what's your name? So mm -hmm. that's when I got to look. And I think the first thing out of my mouth is, they are lavender. And she laughed. But um, And then uh, another cute story is back in the, you know, again, this is 1980s. There was no internet. Right. There, The world was different. So um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor was in London at this point mm -hmm. doing Little Foxes. So uh, Zev Buffman, who was her manager, was also the producer of um, the show Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat which was playing on Broadway, and was up for the possibility of a Tony Award or two. Mm -hmm. uh, Lori Beachman, the phenomenal singer who unfortunately died of, I think it was cervical cancer. Uh, but she's the, people know her best because she originated uh, this, basically, she, well, I don't know if she originated, but she was in the original cast of Cats. Okay. And, and a brilliant artist. And uh, she was the MC or the narrator, I guess yeah, it's called. Yeah, narrator, I think. And uh, loved her dearly, and I thought that was great. And, um, but anyway, what we did was we had to uh, deliver records. Mm -hmm. So we actually delivered good old-fashioned LPs to Tony voters all over New York City. Oh. And the... Oops, I probably made noise there. But um, okay. the um, producer gave me uh, Elizabeth Taylor's chauffeur to drive me from place to place to deliver records. So that was kind of fun. So I got to drive around in the back seat of yeah. Yeah, those. Those are fun memories. Those are good times. It's really cool yeah. to think about how they did that because I, because um, I, I know like SAG members get the advanced the screeners sure. DVDs yeah. for like movies, and so that that makes yeah. sense that there would be a similar process for, for the musicals. Tonys. Yeah, yeah, yep. all that stuff goes out. Yeah, Tony voters are actually you know that's what they're doing right now. You know, if you go up to New York at the moment, you try to get tickets for the big shows with. It's difficult to get tickets anyway, but right at this moment, Tony voters are all Gosh. being pushed into the theaters. Um, I was up at, in New York a couple of weeks ago, and my friend's wife is the uh, stage manager on Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, 
Mm-hmm. I said, so what are the chances? And he said, not a shot in the world. He says, first of all, it's the second most popular show in New York right yeah, now. It blew up. It blew up. And, you know, between that and uh, Comet of 1812 and all that, it's a pretty busy season. Yeah, cool. I wanted to see that. I bought a ticket for the wrong night. I remember. Yeah, yeah. it sucked. But I, <laughs> I, I was there in front of the theater. Yeah. I asked the guy for my ticket, and he said, yeah. we don't have your name. He said, you're supposed to be here next week. And I was like, oops, my mistake. And that sings because I really wanted to hear your thoughts on the lighting. I'll get back. Some, yeah. I'm trying to buy tickets for spring break, but yeah. it's pretty much sold out. I mean, it's doing really well. It's not leaving no. like, anytime soon. No. So. so, Yeah, I'd like to see Dear Evan Hansen with the original cast, though. And that'll last for a while, though, because if it certainly if it wins a Tony Award. But do you think he'll stay in the role for a while? If he wins a Tony Award, he will. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he'll probably have to do at least six months. Gotcha. Yeah. They, they try not to. Usually contracts, and I don't know how it works these days, but in the old days, you know, if you were up for a Tony Award and you won it, you you pretty much promised to do six months after that at least. Because every, now everybody wants to yeah, come see the course. show. Yeah. And yeah. That makes also, I mean... I don't know. As a as a starving artist, I would think that if somebody is like, "Here's another six months where you're guaranteed to be working," I'd be like, "Yes, please, thank you." I'm sure he he will stay in the role until an offer comes around that seems like the next big opportunity. I'm sure, and especially since he like right. he's done movies too, like yeah. I have a friend of mine whose uh, son was a child actor mm-hmm. and started off in like I think his first Broadway show. I don't know exactly was Peter Pan. And he played the, whatever the littlest kid is, John or Michael. Something. Michael plays Michael, and then basically moved from that to Beauty and the Beast uh, because he outgrew the costume. <laughs> and then he was playing Chip, and uh-huh. then he outgrew the costume, and then he went to play whatever his name is in Les Mis, the young boy, Grosh, oh. like Grosh, whatever it is. Yeah, Gavroche. Uh, Gavroche, and then he outgrew the costume, and then he went to Carolina, Carolina Change. And I don't. I think the show, the show just closed with him in it. But you know, it's just, you know, wow. after a while, you get too old for the roles. You outgrow the costume. Yeah. You know, you can't be Winnie the Pooh at Disney unless you're a certain height. That's true, and that is something that was really interesting, and also kind of comforting to discover as an actress. Of like, there's just things that I I will never play, uh-huh. and then that's all. That also makes it okay because then it's like it's not me. It's like. A physical thing that's out. I will never ever be a rock. You'll never be Hermia. No, you'll never be Helena. 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 I'll you never were be Helena. Hermia. I was Hermia. Right. But I'm not tall, so I will never be Helena. That's right. And like, I am not a person of color, so I will never be in Lion King. Yes. And like, that's just so you're like, oh, okay, well, that's just like not an option, and that's fine. But I am in the height range for Tracy Turnblad. Uh huh. And I definitely am in the range for some um, costume characters and some. Like Alice and maybe Tinkerbell and Disney. Do they put Tracy in fat suits? Oh yeah. Do they? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I never knew. You there's um, you can tell because her like ankles don't have definition. Uh huh. Um, also, just even um, Nikki Blonsky, who played her for the movie. Yeah. They like actually had to like keep fattening her up because through the dance process she was losing weight. Right. A Broadway actor doing like eight shows a week. There's no way you should be able to keep on that weight. There's just there's just no way. That's, that's an interesting point. So and that's and I could because I like pizza. <laughs> I know I'd be like, oh, so you want me to put on weight? Right. I there's can do that. Change. I can do. Right. right. There's a change for you. But like somebody, when we went to go see Great Comet, I was looking at Josh Groban and I was like, that is totally butt padding. 
and that is absolutely a fake stomach. Yeah. And somebody was like, really? You think so? I was like, are you kidding? They run up and down those stairs. Like, they are all over the theater. There is no way he could keep weight yeah. like that on. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely butt pad. So what questions do you have? Are we going to get back to lighting? Yes, we can I ask. Just, I, well, actually, not that I care. Actually, I did. We, I'll talk to you for. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, no, I actually, um, when you brought up, you know, well, we didn't have the internet then. Um, how has technology changed your job? I, you know, I was just talking to, I think, I don't know if it was my class. I think I was talking about this in rehearsal last night, just as just students sitting around. Um, I have, I was telling, yeah, I was telling a story yesterday um, to my lighting class. That's who it was. I brought them in the theater because I always bring them into the theater when things are the tech tables down and mm-hmm. they can look at things. And I was, I graduated college in 1981. We got a first, I saw my first computer board. I mean, they were being used. The first computerized lighting system of merit was on Chorus Line, which was built just for the show wow. to give you an idea of the dates. So we're talking about, you know, late 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, we got our first, computer board that I worked on, which was, you know, it worked. It was interesting. <laughs> it brought lights up and down, uh, probably back in 1980 when I was in school. And, um, you know, we didn't have moving lights. We didn't have robotics. We didn't have LEDs. We didn't have any of that stuff. Now you go see shows and all the lights are moving, changing colors, changing yeah. templates and gobos. And, and it's all programmed. It's all programmed in there. And so, um, I remember sitting clearly. We, there's a little Greek diner right outside the theater at Brooklyn College. Mm-hmm. And George, the owner, would just let us sit there all day long. The only deal was that if we were there from 12 to 1 or 12 to 2, we had to buy lunch. Because that was he. That's fair. But the rest of the time, when there was always tables, that was our hangout. And I remember sitting there with my friend Dennis and my friend Lisa and all these people I went to school with. And we're sitting there going, wouldn't it be cool if someday that lights moved and you you could hang 200 lights in a theater and then you could just leave them there all the time. And you could decide what color they're going to be and you dial it up on a computer and you could shutter it and you could change. I mean, everything you could do to an ellipsoidal reflective spotlight, which is kind of the workhorse of theater, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be great if you could just do that? And it, we have it. And not only do we have it, but we have it so that they flash and they move and they're fast. And mm-hmm. so the rock and roll industry has really um, oh, yeah. changed. Yeah. You know, I always say nothing's ever been developed for outside of ETC, which is electronic theater controls up in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever developed anything for the theater because hmm. there's no money. Yeah. Right. So what we're doing is we're taking advantage of because that ETC that's their market. Mm-hmm. It's they do other things, but their market has always been to make theater better. Mm-hmm. All the other companies, the computer companies, the lighting industries—they're all about entertainment and rock and roll. Okay. Because a rock and roll tour makes thousands and thousands of dollars a night. Yeah. Um, so you know you go out with Billy Joel and you got a good light show. If you could spend all that money right. on it, so um, when I go to um, lighting, lighting design international. I bring my students to this conference every year mm-hmm. and there's just, you know, it's an entire conference center, convention center full of nothing but lights, LEDs these days, moving lights, things like that. And you look at it and you go, well, okay, there's 
all this stuff. And then there's, which is just pizzazz, pizzazz, pizzazz. From mm-hmm. Companies from Czechoslovakia and China and the United oh, States and all over. And it's really, really exciting. And then you come back into the theater and some shows, uh, you know, some shows clearly are very dependent on moving lights and stuff like that yeah. in the Broadway market these days. War Horse was, um, they have a lot of lighting effect. I mean, there's, there's shows that are, especially the musicals that are kind of like rock and roll musicals that take advantage right. of that. But certainly if you're doing a checkoff play, this is not, you know, you could use a moving light to kind of, oh, I need a little bit more light over there. I'll move it over there and I'll bring it up. Yeah. But it's not a showpiece. Right. Um, so I, I like to really believe that I have lived in the most exciting time. And the people that I learned from, the, you know, the people who I watched work, the Jennifer Tiptons, uh, the Theron Mussers, these uh, designers, Tom Skelton, who were really just almost second generation lighting design. Because you have to remember that, you know, scenery and costumes have been around as far as back as you could even think about. I yeah. mean, beyond the Greeks. Right. People dressed up around campfires and told stories, you know. Right. You know, Robert Edmund Jones tells this great story about, you know, cavemen. It's a fake story, but cavemen sitting around and, you know, they had a big kill. And instead of just explaining it, they wear the, you know, they take the, the skin and they wear it. Right. And they, they act it out. Um, but It's probably true. Which is, yeah, it's There's probably true. no way true. to confirm, but it's probably yeah, true. Yeah, you know. But certainly, we, you know, you go, we're going back 2,500 years in history and we're talking about we, theater that we know about. Mm-hmm. Um, lighting design really started only in the 1930s. You had to have electric lights first. Yeah. So we're talking about a very modern. I mean, so what's happened from my days in my lifetime, I think that we had some really good things going on in the 1970s when I was really opening up my eyes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. But... I've watched LED technology, color-changing technology. I've watched moving lights develop. I've watched the entire industry change. Yeah. Um, from the days of going to see The Grateful Dead, where they had, you know, uh, lots of colored park hands, which are basically kind of like car headlights, okay. um, doing all the work, to now where, the, you know, up until the end of The Grateful Dead, the, the woman who was their lighting designer started all the way in from the, them being a garage band Wow. All the way up through their career mm-hmm. um, and still is designing lights for different dead divisions and other lighting things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you just look at that industry and you just sit there and you go, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. The difficult part of it is. I was going to say, are there any drawbacks? Well, there's that? a lot. Of, I wouldn't call them drawbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, everything you do takes more time. So if you're using a bunch of technology, high technology lighting instruments, you have to dial up the gel color. You have to dial up this. You have to okay. do this. You have to move the light to the right position. And you could do that with 200 lights when you're writing a cue. Mm-hmm. That's huge. <laughs> um, fortunately, the people who are writing the software and building the computers are making it easier and easier for you to get there. Yeah. But rock and roll shows, as an example, they do the entire show virtually on monitors long before they go into a space. Right, because it has to be able to adapt to the spaces, right? Or it could be 200 hours worth of programming. Mm. And you'll never have a space where you could do that. Yeah. So, talking about things like um, NBC's versions of, you know, uh, Broadway shows. Oh, they're live live broadcasts. They're live broadcasts. You know, they were doing that from a 
the first couple of them they were doing from an old hangar mm-hmm. were actually the lunar module that landed on the moon. That, that was built there. Huh. So they're in the same facility mm-hmm. uh, as that from the 1960s. And uh, my friend Matt, who is, uh, he's a data specialist. Okay. So what he does is, his, uh, his thing is, he makes sure that everything talks to computers and works. Okay. So like, um, he, he's been doing the, the halftime show at the Super Bowl for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the guy, who, you know, when they bring all those things together, he's the guy who makes sure that all of that digital information is happening. Okay. He monitors all that stuff. And, you know, we were talking about that, and he says, you know, the amount of programming time it takes to do that show. I mean, they're in that space for six weeks or something long before they're actually doing it to program lighting, setting up lighting. It's, it's a huge event. Where, you know, in theater, we're still at the place where we're lucky if we have four days or five days to put up a play. Yeah. So we're doing Polaroid Stories right now. Polaroid Stories has video. It's got tons of audio. It's got, you know, as many moving lights as we, we you know, we have about 10 moving lights, or, you know, high tech. <coughs> Excuse me. A bunch of LEDs. It's much more time consuming to program that show. Yet we're still giving ourselves the same three days. So how would it have been done before, like, program the three days? You bring up a light. It has a color in it. You use it. Okay. It, you can't refocus it. You can't do it. So, okay. So, and there's the hanging process of you have to decide where you want them. You have to. But then once they're there, they're just there, and you use the lights that you Yeah, got. exactly. So you okay. know, we spend a lot of time analyzing the set, how the set is being used, the storytelling of the set, and we hang lights according to what we need on the stage. Mm-hmm. Do we need to have some texture on these walls? We add the texture. What color is that texture going to be? Um, so now what's nice about that is we don't have to decide on the color for the texture. Um, so I just did a show last semester at Towson in which there's a big wall in the back. You know, it's an old kind of um, old uh, washed out, I want to say, I forgot what state it is. I forget my place. Really Bluest quickly. Eye. Bluest Eye, okay. South Carolina, whatever it is. It's I don't know. Yeah, southern, it's one of those southern, southern states. State. And Big southern state. Yeah, and so scene by scene, I was able to decide what's the coloration of things because all I have to do is dial up the colors in the LEDs. Mm-hmm. Where before we bought those last year for that show, I would do the same thing, but it would always be blue. Gotcha. Right. And that's... And it's lovely to have that opportunity, but then I, I have to sit there and I have to dial it up, pick the colors, okay. do all that kind of stuff. So every little step um, to write one cue right now, we have a cue in uh, Polaroid Stories, which is these lights that you are used to kind of simulate somebody breaking into pieces. Okay. Um, so the programming of that, uh, Thomas, who's my student, he programmed it and he's been tweaking it every day. Mm-hmm. Just to make it a little bit better, and each time he sits down and tweaks it, it could be twenty minutes worth of work. Yeah, and that's also Thomas. Like Thomas is a bit of a perfectionist, yeah. from what I can see. Yeah, well, that's true, and but yeah, not that that's, that's a bad thing. That's, it's a good, yeah, a it's good a good, thing. yeah. You want to make it the best that you can, so right. you're always going back and touching things. Wow, I wouldn't have. Thought, that's really interesting that it actually things take longer now because you would think that like all of these things are going to make your job easier, and you would think those to make it. We quicker. could we could use less so. If we wanted three colors mm-hmm. of like, let's say we have daytime, nighttime, and we have, uh, you know, we go to hell. 
right? And so we have this reddish, orangish, hellish life world. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have to hang, a number of years ago, we would have to hang a bunch of lights, one that took care of the red, one that took care of the blues of the night times, one mm-hmm. that was amber in daytime. Uh, well, now we only have to use one-third of those lights. Okay. Because those lights could change, change colors. change colors, and they can multitask. And they can multitask. So there's one side. However, now, where we used to hang a light and give it power, mm-hmm. now we have to hang a light, give it power, and then we have to send the data from the computer to it. Okay. So there's twice as much wiring and much more difficult wiring. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll have a light that's all of a sudden sitting by itself in the middle of the stage. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we use Wi-Fi for that. Okay. So we have a Wi-Fi network that talks to that lighting instrument. It rather has to than be a cable. reliable Wi-Fi network. Yeah. And we have a, you know, what we do is we set up Wi-Fi that's not connected to anything Thing else. else. All it has okay. is the lighting instruments and the light board. That's it. Makes sense. Nobody could get on and check their, you know, check so their now, I mean, Google. So now lighting training must be much more extensive than it used to be, I would think. Totally. Now you also have to know right. programming yes. as well. So as I tell my students, there's only so much they'll get here. Mm-hmm. There's only so much time in a day. Um, so during the summer times every other year, for example, ETC, which has basically most of the theater market, mm-hmm. they host a conference. They do it every year, but one is vendors, so the vendors could learn the stuff. And then the next year is the end user. Okay. And so they have a really good student price, and we help the students financially. And what we'll do is we'll send three or four of them to Wisconsin, mm-hmm. to the factory. And they host a, a three-day conference. And all, what they do is, you know, they feed them, they take care of them, they don't house them. You know, it costs money. Right. But, but um, and if you're over 21, they give you lots of alcohol, awesome. if you want. And then... Um, what you do for three days, actually, is you just sit down. Everybody sits at a console. They have, like, you know, 200 consoles set up. And they have somebody in the front who's just demonstrating it, and that's how you learn it. That's right. Um, the other lighting board that we have in our theater is called a Grand MA. And so what I tell students is, really, if you want to do this, um, then you just need to go up to New Jersey. And there's a two-day course that I oh. took. Okay, because um, I was going to say, you probably... Learned either on the job or... I learned, but I, there's two ways to learn everything. Mm-hmm. One is called YouTube. <laughs> it's true. Um, there are entire courses in it on YouTube. Um, the difficult thing about that is when you search for something, you have to understand what it's called. Different lighting systems use different syntax. Of course they do. So <laughs> if you want to block a cue on an ETC console, I know that. Now, if I want to do that on the Grand MA, I'm not really sure... I do now. But at first, I didn't know what it was called. <laughs> right. And so I had to sit there and go, okay, what's the equivalent to that, and how do I right. look it up? But, you know, there's a series of, like, 25 videos. Uh, so Thomas, at first, talking about my designer now, he was like, oh, I'm, I, I can't deal with this. I have to design, and you're throwing me on a new lighting console, blah, 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 blah. Can I just use the other one because I know it? And I'm like, no, you can't. You need to learn it someday. We need to learn it. Um so I have graduates of mine. I have two graduates, at least, that I know of right now. And again, they're young designers. They do really good work. Um, Helen being one of them, who I believe you know. She, I think she was a... I, I don't know. I keep forgetting who graduated at one time. In you life. have also, like, actor, and she was a lighting designer. Like yeah. I she was also here for two years because she, she was a transfer. So. Gotcha. But 
you know, um, she's a really good programmer, both in the ETC world and the Grand MA. Mm -hmm. um, and so what she does is that's how she earns her keep. Um, good programmers on Broadway shows are getting paid a really good price per hour. Yeah. Really good. I mean, it's a pretty specialized. Yeah, it's thing. very specialized. And the better you are, the more tricks you bring with you. Because mm -hmm. every time that you, especially on, on these Grand MA consoles, they're so individualized and you set them up differently mm -hmm. according to how you work. So one person works one way, board set up one way, somebody else does that. And there's all these tricks that you could build. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is you, when you build this great, great effect, you have the perfect lightning effect in the world that's ever been built. You get to put that on your USB drive. And you, just take and you that get with to you. use it. So you build a library. Oh. Um, so, you know, the top programmers are, you know. Yeah. And what's interesting is I just heard this recently from somebody at a conference. I was just a lighting conference I just went to. I met a guy. And basically a lot of the programmers are now called associate lighting designers. Okay. Because the lighting designers don't know how to do it. They, they have no clue. They don't run these consoles. They don't know them. They have an idea. So in the theater, in, in the rock and roll industry, the designer and the operator are the same person. Okay. So they travel with the shows. In the theater, designers move from show to show, and they leave the programming to somebody else. Okay. So what the designer says is, well, imagine this. So everything's going to explode in reds and greens. And I want it to do this, this, and this, and right. this. Then they walk away for half an hour. And or the they do something else. Out how to do and the it. programmer does it. Okay. I guess that's kind of in that happens in costuming too. The designer comes in and is oh, like, yeah. yeah, I want this big feather thing. And then right. the, the, like, the, and the, as long stitchers, as you, yeah. the stitchers and stuff figure out right. how to. And um, as long as you say, you know, I, I, I want a dart here. Drapers or, and stitchers. I want, you know, so obviously you need to know the language to talk to them. Right. It's different in the lighting world because uh, sometimes we don't even know the language. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's really much looser than that. The other thing that you can do in costume design that you can never do in lighting is you can't draw it. True. So the costume designer True. and the scenic designer get to, get to build a model. They get mm -hmm. to draw a rendering. Right. Lighting doesn't exist that way. So there's, there's no kind of... So what we're saying is that for programmers out there, there's an opening for a software where you could kind of play around theoretically That or exists. Okay. You can do it virtually. Okay. The problem is, again, rock and roll, if you look at rock and roll, rock and roll is usually performed on an open stage with a simple piece of scenery. Mm -hmm. Theater, to, to, for, for me to do that in theater, um, I have to be given, which will never happen, a fully realized, three-dimensional, texturized set right. to work on to light. With each different set. If the set and changes. if they're multi-sets, multi-sets, right. So you can't do it the same way. I could do it, and I have the capabilities of doing it. I have the software to build that set and do a beautiful like job. Somebody with it. doing a three D rendering of it. So it's adding so many hours to my life. That's fair. Not, so not quite worth it. Every now and then, I get a scenic designer that actually—that's the way that instead of building models, they do renderings. They do computer renderings, and they're doing it on the same software as I'm using. So sometimes I get to do it, but I don't ever expect it. Right. Yeah. Um, so there is no pre conceiving you know we teach students and we i learn to do lighting renderings mm -hmm. but if there's a hundred moments in a play you can't do that all you could do is say here's my feeling about act one well and it's not just 
they're not clear cut. Like there's also like the transitions in between. Absolutely. Which you would also have to find a way to represent. Right. And sometimes I feel like that's a, a really important part of, because lighting is sometimes one of those aspects of the, of a production that like, if it's done well, you don't always notice it. Uh-huh. Like it's more like you feel it, but you don't like, oh, that was a great cue. Quite so like the, if it's messy, if it's like clunky yeah. transitions, then you do notice it. You know, the, the, everybody always said if lighting's good, you don't notice it. That's true if you're doing certain plays. Certain plays. You know, so all you're doing is you're doing a checkoff play and somebody moves from stage right to stage left and the lights shift a little bit. It really shouldn't call attention right. to itself. But some shows, that's all it is. It's, oh, yeah. it's lighting. And... Like I said, great comment. Like, oh, I noticed yeah. the lighting. Yeah. It is all lighting. Right. So there and are definitely times sure. that it's noticeable. Yeah. And, and it should be. So but... would you say that um, lighting designers, like coming up now, these like new generation of lighting designers, that it would behoove them to be able to both have the concept design, you know, talk about like, oh, I want this like big effect here and be able to program are those people like more useful and like when you start i think what happens with a lot of young designers is that their theaters when they're when theaters are replacing their light boards because they're dying mm-hmm. you know and i'm you know th- theaters that have a little bit of money at least yeah when they can when they can um they're going to replace their light boards with a more up-to-date light board and that lighting designer is not going to have a board operator per se that knows mm-hmm. anything they're going to bring in somebody who's a member of the company or a friend mm-hmm. who's going to press go when the stage manager says press go right or they can have a stage manager presses the go button when they think go right so those young designers must know the equipment because they're going to be responsible for designing their own show right there's an advantage to that because now you know the nomenclature now you know the, right. the system um and I think that's really, really, it, that's an advantage. Yeah. But then you have designers like me who um, I do know it and I know it. I, I know my boards better because I happen to be an educator. Mm-hmm. So I have to teach it as well. Right. Um, that always helps you know something better yeah. because it's a totally different thing to know it yourself. Right. And then know it enough to teach it. Yeah. And I have a dear friend. I won't mention his name, Kenton Yeager, <laughs> who um, he teaches at the University of Tennessee. I think a great, just a great designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really admire his work, and he always jokes about the fact that he has no clue how to run a light board, mm-hmm. not a clue in the world, and he doesn't really care. Um, and well, he's probably in a position where he's, yeah, he doesn't and, need to. And I think he's probably, um, you know, Hal Binkley, who um, designed Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I I think that. And I, I, I'm not speaking for Hal. I'm just using his name almost as an example mm-hmm. because I've never watched him work. I've seen his work, but I've never watched him work. And, you know, I I assume that he knows enough of the language to be able to communicate it, but heavily relies on that programmer to understand that and make it happen. Right. Um, because you have to have that conversation at least. Um, so... You you work, you learn the language, but you don't necessarily start off knowing the language. Okay. Um, there are times that I'll walk into a theater, as an example. I'll get hired to a, to a theater, and I've never seen that lighting console before. Okay. I have no idea what it is. 
I might have heard of it, but I have no idea. So I can't connect to it. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can know them all. So if somebody said to me, oh, we're working on a whole hog, I have no clue. <laughs> Never worked on one before. And so now what I have to do is I have to rely on that conversation mm-hmm. and then say, well, can we do a little bit more of this? Or that's great. Can we hold on to that? But let's change this. Okay. So you can see how time consuming that could be. Especially yeah. after a programmer might have worked for 20 minutes on a single effect. Mm-hmm. Um, or more. Yeah. Um, the other thing that lighting designers are dealing more with, again, according to what where you are and what level you're at. I mean, I'm semi-responsible here, if not kind of responsible, for making sure that the video that we're using more and more is actually up on the screen. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that I have to think about. So working on Polaroid stories as a faculty member, I have a student on li- who's a, l- a student lighting designer that I'm working with. I have a stage manager, fortunately not the first show, so it's not as difficult it's like his third show. Who's stage manager? Uh, Billy. Billy. Okay, that's good. And so when, in some cases, you know, when you have a first-time stage manager, you're sitting there going, okay, this is what you do, and this is what, even if they took the class, it's, yeah, you don't stage manage until you do it. Yeah. And then. And stage um, managing is a beast. Right. Not everybody's fit for yeah. it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm calling myself the co-sound designer on the show. I mean, I'm doing all of the effect work and I'm doing all the layering of effects. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I'm not calling myself the sound designer alone is I've asked David White to take credit, who's the director, mm-hmm. as a co-stage manager, as a co-sound designer, because he's picked all the music. Gotcha. So I was like, I don't, you know, I don't want to take credit for what you've done. I want to share okay. the credit with you. Makes sense. You did a lot of work here. So, um, so, so. At the same time that I'm trying to get all the video working and doing that and then dealing with the stage manager or not having, in this case, too much to deal with, which is nice, mm-hmm. and a lighting designer and everything else that's going on and video, mm-hmm. I'm just really busy. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. It's yeah. just a lot going on. And usually during run-throughs and tech, I, sometimes I just want to be the scenic designer because <laughs> the scenery's done for the most part. Yes, you're taking notes, but it's there. Yeah. And during tech, it's you just kind of. Yeah, during tech, you don't have to work that hard. Um, you know, as as Daniel says, the best thing about tech is he can start moving on and start drafting and working on his next, next play. Thing. You know, he pays attention, but there's yeah. only so much you could do. That's true. You know, and. Uh, Their process starts long. Starts. Oh, yeah. Definitely starts before. Yeah, I mean, my next project is uh, Noises Off. You know, which is great, fun play. It's, you know, it's not the lighting designer's dream. I mean, it's important that you get it right. Yeah. But, you know, it's not a flashy show at all. It's not a set designer's dream either because the set's prescribed. It's pretty much prescribed. I, you really can I mean. You really can't change You could try to make it your own, but, like, yeah. it would be like if you chose different wallpaper. Uh, which is pretty <laughs> much what we do. Now, here's the interesting thing. You know, traditionally, the play is done on a turntable. So that the set turns around from Act 1 to Act 2. Right. Sorry, spoiler. Um, but if you haven't seen Noises Off yet and you're listening to this. It doesn't make sense to you anyway. doesn't make, yeah. Um, so. So the what stages managed to do it not on a turntable. Yeah. And that was a well, feat. Every man has to do it too because they don't have, they have more width than they have depth. So it's actually, I think, in three different pieces that have to be yeah, that's, that's That's how they did it. And, yeah. bet- and between you saw them. Right. So, you know, there's always those things, but um, one of my favorite things I've ever seen, actually, was Daniel Edinger's set change 
When they did in Rep last year, they did Death of a Salesman and Streetcar Named Desire at Everyman Theater. And they changed the set over in about 35, 40 minutes, maybe, maybe less by the time they got done. And it was, they invited the audience on certain days to actually sit and watch. They could have lunch and Mm -hmm. watch the changeover. And it was pretty spectacular. I mean, just magical where things went and how he utilized the set. Mm -hmm. Um, The difficult part of that is that the sets were very different. Mm -hmm. And the lighting designer, um, he, um, Harold Burgess, who teaches at the University of Maryland, did a beautiful job with the show. I mean, just gorgeous. Two totally different looks, Mm -hmm. um, but one light hang. I think they focused, refocused a dozen or so lights between. Okay. Um, So they actually would just refocus a few things. But that's, that it's, in a way, yeah, you're right. The set design's done. Yeah. Now the lighting designer's got to deal with, now how do I get this yeah. lit? Mm-hmm. Um, he actually got another show this year, which was uh, two completely different sets in the play dot. Okay. Um, and it, the set just kind of moved over. It was kind of interesting the way that the scenery was designed. But again, he, he's got, he got that multi. We don't do a lot of multi-set plays at Everyman because there's just no place to put them. Yeah. Um, let alone two different plays completely, mm-hmm. which was a, a huge, very successful and a huge undertaking. Yeah, I really wanted to, to work on that show, sure. but I wasn't. I wasn't available, and Harold did a great job on it, so mm-hmm. no complaints. Uh, well, I just saw White Snake at Center Stage at uh-huh. the New Theater. Um, if you get a chance, yeah, um, it's very, very good. Really funny, and the lighting was really cool. They did a lot of. Um, it was two separate people who designed the projections and who designed the lighting design. But actually, it was the same person who did lighting, sound, and scenic. Right. And I was like, your head must explode. That's so much work. Yeah. But it was all it was all beautiful, and you will totally love it. So you know what, Allie? Yes. I'm just going to say this. I've never been a starving artist. Hmm. But you, that's, I, that's a really I lucky wanna, thing. I just want to point that out. That's fair. Um, when you when you come from a background of a designer who's got the capabilities of doing the technical work, mm-hmm. it seldom happens. Um, so I also didn't make a real choice. I mean, obviously I made a choice. Um, the idea that I'm in the academia... I was going to ask you about that. ...was totally uh, unplanned. Okay. Um, I was working at as the master after grad school. I went to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst for grad school. Okay. And when I left there, um, I got my first quote unquote I won't call it professional job, my postgraduate job because I worked for years before I went to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hold on. Press. You can find me at allypress.net or as DaughterPick on all social social media platforms. So that's D-A-U-G-H-T-E-R-P-I-C-K. And I'm Emily Luking. I have a website. It's www.emilyluking.com. And then you can follow me on Instagram if you want to see my art at emily.luking. Luking is L-U-K-I-N-G. All the things, every link that we have possibly mentioned throughout this will be in the description and on our blog. So, thank you. Thank you so much. 
And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, requests, or anything else, you can email the Hungry Artists at the Hungry Artists Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.